Hi, I'm David Brower, David, David R. Brower, and I add the R because there are a hundred other David Browers in the United States, and that keeps me separate from most of them. I like the direction you're going in, KBOO, Portland, and I wish you had a lot more company. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available on our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Finance Committee meets the second Tuesday of the month at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify that a meeting is being held. The following program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. It's often overlooked, but American women were critical in the Vietnam War. Between 30,000 and 50,000 military and civilian women served in Vietnam. We don't know the real number because of poor record keeping and because the people in charge didn't pay as much attention to women. And yet thousands of women served in intelligence and clerical jobs and as nurses and entertainers. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the women of the Vietnam War. In the 1960s, the war was still a pretty strange place to find an American woman. What brought them there, and why did they sign up to serve? Barbara Lilly volunteered with the Red Cross in 1968. She went to Vietnam because she thought it was her turn to go. I wanted to go to Vietnam for a multitude of reasons. Um, one of them was that it was the women's lib time was coming, and I seriously believed that if I wanted equal rights, I should have equal responsibilities. A lot of my friends, male friends, were terrified of the draft, and if I funked a class, all I had to do was answer to my parents, but their flunking out of college could have been a matter of life and death. Another thing was I was a Kennedy kid. Ask not. I was raised Catholic. Kennedy was Catholic. What your country can do for you. And he asked what we could do for our country. Ask what you can do for your country. So this really got to me too. And I recognize the importance of our servicemen because I was born in 1945. And for as long as I could remember, at some point or another, our country was at war. So it kind of felt like it was my turn. Vietnam actually was my first time living away from home, so when I took a bite, I took a really big bite. And Kelsey, a librarian who joined the Army's Special Services, saw Vietnam as a chance for adventure. So when those recruiters came to the library school and I found out there was a library program in Vietnam, I just couldn't wait to volunteer. 
The special services people were anxious to inform me that no special services person had died from hostile fire. They had only died in plane crashes and vehicle accidents. <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I know that that seems incomprehensible, but the idea that I might be injured or killed, I never even thought about it. And then there was Jane McCarthy. She was in nursing school in Boston in 1967, and she had another reason. She enlisted. I was coming home every six months for a funeral for one of my friends because 68, 69 was just a horrible time of the war when so many were dying. And so I debated, I was debating, do I join the anti-Vietnam War demonstrators or do I take care of these guys that have to go? off to war. And that's what I did at the third funeral when I was standing there. I made that decision to go back to Boston and find an army recruiter and join the army. Jane felt she needed to go and take care of the men who were serving. But she also saw another opportunity. Her parents had forbidden her from going to college. Instead, she was sent to nursing school. And then Jane's father expected her to move back to the small town where she grew up to get married and start a family. The army for Jane was a way out. I knew in the back of my mind that with the GI Bill that I could then put myself through college after I did these two years in the army. And this was my way out, to tell you the truth. So one by one, each of these women signed up to do her part. They suited up in camouflage and headed to base camp. Well. That's not exactly how it went. When we picture men in Vietnam or any war we see, combat boots, helmets, fatigues. But for the women, things were different, and many were not appropriately outfitted for the setting. Yeah, the uniforms were really contentious, both for Women's Army Corps and for the Red Cross. This is Heather Stirr, author of Beyond Combat, Women and Gender in the Vietnam War Era. Uh, the expectation originally was that you're wearing skirts, you're wearing pantyhose, and you're wearing pumps, all of which is completely impractical in Vietnam, where it is very hot, very humid. You're walking through dusty, muddy, dirty conditions. Women would walk out in their dress uniforms, and a helicopter would come into land and blow up not only dust, but blow up their skirts. And so they're, you know, just to get used to kind of holding your skirt down as you, if you walk out because you never know if a helicopter is going to be landing. So all of these just really impractical expectations that were placed on women's appearance. Barbara Lilly remembers getting on and off those choppers while trying to remain ladylike in what she calls her bulletproof blues, short powder blue dresses issued by the Red Cross. Meanwhile, Karen Johnson, an Army Command Information Officer, an editor of the Stars and Stripes, and the only woman in her unit ever, had a different experience. I asked the question when I was issued five pair of men's boxer shorts what I was supposed to do with those, and they told me I could use them to shine my boots. I might add that no one shined their boots in Vietnam because we didn't want the other side to see us coming. Who had time to worry about what you look like? Karen remembers long hours flying around the country to distribute almost a million newspapers per week. It was dangerous work. I, I did have some fingernail polish shipped over the States and did my own nails and toenails so that if 
if I came home with a toe tag, at least my toenails were painted with my toe tag on it. And Kelsey, the librarian, also cared more about function over form, and she quickly shed many of her uniform accessories for something more practical. The heels got lost practically the week I arrived, and everybody wore sneakers. And we stopped wearing the hose right away, stopped wearing the gloves. We were supposed to wear the hat, but it, it was really only the people who were in Saigon or Long Bend that wore the hat because that's where the higher-ups were. And she wasn't issued any protective gear, even though the library and nearby areas were rocketed and mortared. I scrounged a helmet, which I actually still have. The civilians were just sent in as if nothing was going to happen to us, as if there was no war going on. Vietnam was the first of the no front wars. In previous wars, in World War I, World War II, even in Korea, there was a front. And if you were behind the lines, you were much less likely to have combat action around you. In Vietnam, that wasn't the case. They warned us when we were in cabs in Saigon to be careful to keep the windows rolled up so that so no one threw a grenade into the vehicle. It was a very different kind of war, but they were still trying to fight it by the rules of previous wars. And the women suffered from that more than anyone. Nurses and even donut dollies were issued flak jackets and helmets for protection when necessary. But there seemed to be a strong idea that women serving in Vietnam should dress just like women at home. Both in the military and in the Red Cross, supervisors and, and, and directors of those programs wanted to maintain a gender division. So they wanted to be able to say to the public, yes, we're sending women into a war zone, but they're still women, so it's okay. We're not making them into men. We're not expecting them to act like men or look like men. And so, in fact, we're going to make sure that we preserve their femininity and we preserve what is the kind of mainstream accepted version of femininity, even as we're sending them into a very masculine realm. And also then the notion that, oh my gosh, women could die here too. So that completely throws a wrench into the whole idea that we as men are here protecting women back home. So I think there probably was some kind of psychological impetus there to keep women looking conventionally feminine, even though they were in places that could be mortared and were mortared. And there were other ways this expectation of femininity took form. On several occasions, Jane McCarthy was not so much asked as she was ordered to attend elegant dinners with senior male officers. Yeah, I was ordered to get in a chopper and they would fly me over to the headquarters and then we would have dinner with the generals with silverware and china and candlelight. And I'm like, what am I doing here? It was almost insulting to me. It's like, you know, a pimp and a prostitute almost. Jane didn't think fancy dinners were part of her job description, but her commanding officers disagreed. It was more that I was ordered over there as a woman. It was like they took me out of the nurse's role and put me in the, in the woman thing. Said, okay, go be a woman and flirt with the generals for a while. 
No, no. It made me really mad. I couldn't say to the chief nurse, no, I'm not going to go to dinner with some general. You took orders. You know, after I've heard nurses talk about that they didn't feel safe over there with the men and stuff. And I, I never, I didn't feel that anyone attacked me physically in any way. And at the same time, I had to protect myself. I had to be aware and get myself out of there. That's how I felt. That happened for nurses, that happened for Women's Army Corps personnel, and that happened for donut dollies. Um, that there was kind of an expectation that you would be available to go to the officers' parties, to go on a date with an officer. And women that I talked to, more often than not said, where I faced sexual harassment or being treated a certain way because of how I looked, because I was a woman, it came from the officers. Women with other jobs, like nurses or librarians, were often expected to do this kind of entertaining on the side. But for some women, the whole reason they were there was to entertain men. That was exactly the point of the Red Cross program that's called the Supplemental Recreational Activities Overseas Program, or Donut Dollies. That's a reference back to World War I and World War II when the Red Cross sent women volunteers to serve coffee and donuts to American servicemen. They said, you are meant to be a touch of home, and that's what the women were told in their training session. So you're meant to be a touch of home, a reminder to soldiers of their wives, their girlfriends, their mothers, their sisters, kind of the American girl next door. The idea is that reminding of that will make them remember what they're fighting for. And they're fighting to preserve the American way of life against communism. They're fighting for their women and girls back home. And this is a reminder of why they're here. If I could think of something that united all of the women that I've interviewed, whether they're nurses, Women's Army Corps, Donut Dollies, it is that desire to at least delay marriage and family. So it really is an interesting tension there in terms of who the women were who went over there and how they were recruited and then what they were meant to symbolize. Donut Dollies played games, served snacks, and offered to listen or a shoulder to lean on. It sounds lighthearted and fun, but it involved long days and emotional encounters. Here's Barbara Lilly again, talking about a night when she, as a donut dolly, was supposed to serve dinner to a large group of soldiers, but something went terribly wrong. There was a group of 80 that went out, and there were only 30 that came back. The rest had either been killed or wounded. And our Jeep got there too late, for dinner, but we were able to take them ice cream. So there was one young guy I can remember, he was sitting with his back to the tree and he just had tears streaming down his face. Excuse me. And gradually, we just kind of eased over to him. And the magic question for every GI we saw was, hey, where are you from? So we got him talking and, you know, he wasn't fine, but he wasn't just staring off into space crying. And for years, I could still see his face. And even now, I, I have a vision of exactly how it looked. 
they felt, I think, forgotten sometimes. And when this young woman shows up who doesn't have to be there, they're like, wow, maybe I am important to someone. And Kelsey describes what it was like to be the touch of home for these men in the face of such tragedy. Regardless of what was going on, whether we were being attacked, whether somebody we knew had just been killed, you can't break down, you can't cry, you can't get upset, you can't get angry. You're always on, positive and smiling and perky, and that takes a toll after a while. So American women were in Vietnam in service to their country and in service to the men fighting there, whether to boost their spirits as a donut dolly or their physical well-being as a nurse. The women took care of soldiers, but Heather Starr points out there was no mechanism for those women to be taken care of. So it was recognized men can get PTSD, but not generally talked about or understood that the nurses could be going through the same thing in their own way. Yes, that's exactly right, that that just wasn't talked about. I think the idea was that fighting on the front lines and seeing your friends be killed in front of you, narrowly escaping death yourself, that's what causes PTSD. But it wasn't recognized that having to be reassuring if a a unit is being brought in, men on stretchers, they've got to get to work and they've got to be assuring the men that they're taking care of that they're going to be okay. Meanwhile, in their own minds and in their own hearts, they're trying to figure out how they process all of these young men, teenage men in some cases, being brought in, dying in their arms or dying on their tables or knowing that they're not going to be able to see again or walk again. It wasn't discussed that this too causes PTSD. We didn't talk about it, which wasn't normal, because as a nurse, you talk about your patients. You have patient conferences to talk about patients. And in Vietnam, we did not talk about our patients. We didn't talk about how many patients we put in body bags today. We didn't do that. And I remember thinking, I'm going to pay a price for this someday. Jane McCarthy left Vietnam after completing her commitment with the Army Nurse Corps. She took a 26-hour flight, squeezed her swollen feet back into her high heels, signed some paperwork, and then a military rep handed her a few thousand dollars and told her, you're out of the Army now, you can go home. And that was that. Her tour of duty was over. But I remember looking around at everybody else in civilian clothes and just hustle bustling around like there was no war going on at all. And just crying like, I don't understand. What is, you know, just crying. And I remember getting home and sitting on the back step with my father and he didn't know what to do. And he just yelled to my mother, what she needs is a good meal. <laughs> and so I remember thinking, oh my, I they don't understand. They haven't got it. I mean, I didn't even understand. How could I expect them to understand? And I often say, coming home was harder than going to Vietnam and going was pretty difficult. Jane stayed true to her plans and immediately headed off to college. She worked evenings at a hospital. One night, she was working with a student nurse and sent her to take an elderly woman with a broken hip to be x-rayed. So she did, and she came back a little while later, and she was crying. And I said to her, what's wrong with you? And she said, well, she died. And I remember thinking, 
I hope I just was thinking and didn't say it. You're crying over that? Ivy was just holding a guy in my arms who bled to death from a chest wound two weeks ago. And you're crying over that? And that's when I realized this was not a good place for me to be. It was a very dark, 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 dark time. Jane realizes now that she had classic PTSD. She couldn't sleep. She didn't eat. She had nightmares. Adjusting to civilian life was odd, something that Barbara Lilly, who also spent a year in Vietnam, could relate to. I had been in a sorority, and I had a wonderful group of sorority sisters, but what was interesting was that somehow I had changed. I was planning a wedding because I came home in March and we were married in May, but it wasn't as important to me to worry about China and silver and all those things. I just kind of felt like a fish out of water because I felt so disconnected. A lot has changed for women since Vietnam. When the last donut dolly left a military base in 1972, Women are no longer serving just to support the men. They now serve side by side with them. But Heather Stir cautions that culturally, society still isn't really ready for women in the war zone. There still are these ideas that compartmentalize women into one box and then men into another. And we see that in debates over whether or not women should be armed for combat. The Defense Department has said that yes, they can be, we're still discussing that. Like, is this right? Can they physically take it? Are their male comrades going to be distracted by their presence? So even though women have achieved much more ground in the military now compared to 40 years ago, uh, there still are these conversations about should they be there serving alongside men? And a lot of what is around the debates over women in combat is this idea that suddenly women are going to be put in a place that they've never been before and it's going to completely upend what um, our, our thoughts about what it is and, and who does it. But I think if we think about combat and we think about nurses and the trauma that comes out of that experience, women have been there at least since the Vietnam War. <laughs> I'm not sure happy is the right word, but the reasons I went was to support the guys I feel like I did that. I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And the librarian says she now gets emails from guys telling her they used her libraries and how much it meant that someone cared enough to provide that service in Vietnam. Still, she says it's not enough. People have no idea that any women were in Vietnam. If they have some idea that there were women there, it was only nurses. There were 67 American women killed in Vietnam. The eight nurses, the military women who died, they're on the wall in D.C. But all the rest of those women were civilians. And virtually no one knows about them. I absolutely think women have been ignored. The guys were ignored by the VA, but the women were even more ignored. Karen Johnson, the Stars and Stripes editor, still has to explain to people that she's not wearing her husband's bronze star, but she actually earned it in Vietnam herself. Shortly after Karen returned from Vietnam in 1972, she joined a lawsuit fighting for back pay, and she won. 
uh, men who were serving in combat over there, their wives could continue to live on base or off-base housing, and they still drew their assistance payment. That did not apply to women. Even though women were marrying their husbands back in the state like mine was, I didn't get any housing allowance. Eventually, I think I got around $10,000 back for pay that they had withheld. Because thousands of women serving in Vietnam were civilians, Veterans Affairs benefits were also largely restricted to men, which Ann Kelsey became keenly aware of when the VA started testing vets for exposure to Agent Orange. So then I started researching it. I read enough that I decided, okay, um, I'm not gonna take a chance on having kids. So I had my tube side. I know a lot of Vietnam vets, men and women who have children with severe disabilities, not to mention what the people in Vietnam are suffering through. Yes, it was a hard decision, but I feel strongly that it was the right one. And all the civilians are totally on their own in how they deal with that. Of course, veteran status doesn't provide immunity. Jane McCarthy says Agent Orange exposure likely caused the cancer diagnosis in her best friend about 10 years ago. She was also an Army nurse. When the wounded came in, we had to cut off their uniforms, and we never wore gloves there. So we were exposed, if they were exposed, to the Agent Orange. And so anyway, Chrissy said, she has this leukemia. They did all the chemo and the bone marrow transplant. And then I got a call from Tom from the hospital saying that they had just told Chris and him that there was nothing else that they could do. She died a couple of days later. A memorial dedicated to all the women who served in Vietnam was erected on the National Mall in 1993. Jane McCarthy didn't realize at the time just how meaningful having that memorial would be. She remembers marching down the street in Washington for its dedication, holding a banner for the 95th evacuation hospital where she had worked in Vietnam. And the veterans, the soldiers were lined up on the side of the road in their wheelchairs. And, and every once in a while you'd hear, that's my hospital, oh, you took care of me. I guess maybe it was when I started to realize how important I was to them. I wonder if we knew when we were doing that, that it would have such a healing effect on all of us. Because even today, every Veterans Day and every Memorial Day in the morning, we go down and we tell our stories. And then we have a candlelight vigil the night before. So all of that, to me, is healing work. Jane spoke to a small crowd there on Memorial Day in May of 2018. She talked about her days as a nurse in Da Nang and ended with a poem written by Vietnam veteran Daryl Nichols. Here's part of it. Listen now, I have a story to tell about some women who lived through hell. They fought in a war in a special way, 12, sometimes 16 hours a day. This is a story of pain, 
and strife and of men's agony and fight for life. She will tell you stories of blood and pain that in her mind will always remain. How many hands in the night did she hold while a young voice cried out, I'm so cold. How many faces does she still see like the memories we have, both you and me? Let us not forget the stories they tell, for they were our sisters who lived through hell. Thank you. program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Thousands of women did their part in Vietnam, but thousands more back home were also deeply affected by the war. The wives and girlfriends of the men who fought lived with